Good morning, everyone. Uh, sorry, we're a couple of minutes late. These are the, the issues that can come up occasionally with electronic media. Thank you for joining us. Uh, there are many of you who are on this uh, telemedicine, telegram rounds, but uh, there are many ways we can call it. And so thank you for, for joining us again. And we have a, a great speaker today. Uh, she's a uh, staple for Connecticut Children's, and, and I'll introduce her in just a second. Uh, but, but before that, I, you know, it is very important for us to take a minute uh, to um, recognize and, and honor uh, one of our pediatricians uh, that many of you have known for a long, long time, um, and that's Dr. Bill Henry. Dr. Bill Henry, uh, who was born in uh, 1937, passed away on May 8th uh, this year as a result of COVID-19. Uh, so this is the real, uh, the real effect um, and the sadness that this, uh, this virus has brought to us where uh, many of, of um, our many of our colleagues that are uh, uh, over the age of 70, over the age of 80, have been affected. Many parents, grandparents uh, that are uh, in this age group have been affected tremendously here in Connecticut. And uh, and Bill was one of those individuals. Uh, uh, Dr. Henry was someone who I've known for a long time. Uh, when I was here as a resident in the late 80s, uh, he was your classic, uh, you know, wonderful, nice. A pediatrician who uh, took care of kids in Glastonbury for a long, long time and uh, was retired and, and unfortunately passed away. So uh, I want all of us to, uh, where you're sitting, where you are, just to pause for, for a few seconds to remember Bill and honor his uh, memory and his life. Bill, you will be missed. And now let's move on to our grand rounds. Uh, and today, again, we have somebody who's very popular. Uh, whenever we, we have Joyce, uh, the, the, the auditorium is usually full. And today we have uh, all the homes and all the offices everywhere, everywhere you're located and joining us for, for this uh, virtual visit. And of course, the topic is gonna be outstanding. It's very relevant to all of us. Uh, it's telemedicine in today's Connecticut and forecast for tomorrow. Uh, some of you, since people join in from all over the, the world, all over the country now, it is important to give uh, just a short biography for those of you who do not, not know Joyce. Uh, she's one of the founding principals of Danaher Lagnese. Uh, she serves as co-management principal of the firm and head of the medical malpractice defense unit. Uh, her practice concentration is complex civil litigation, principally high exposure medical malpractice defense. And I want to emphasize the word defense. That's really the important part here. And for over 30 years, she has defended hundreds, hundreds of medical malpractice cases in all venues in Connecticut, and really has been a star for Connecticut Children's. I mean, it's, this is, she's someone that, if we ever have a question, if we ever have a concern um, at, to support uh, our MDs, our PAs, our APRNs, uh, and the hospital, is, she comes in with great wisdom, uh, understands you know, how to help us, and really takes a line of, you know, of course, always on behalf of patients to support them, but, but really, you know, uh, highlights how difficult it is for us to practice medicine in, in this new world. And, and now she's uh, switching into an even more complex world, which is the word, world of telemedicine. And she will give us some sound advice uh, of how do we navigate this uh, in, in the world of telemedicine. And, you know, again, I want to emphasize how wonderful all of you have been in switching very quickly with support from many. Jeff Sargent is here in the in the tele auditorium. Uh, and uh, I want to give a, a round of applause to Jeff for you know, just an amazing work, amazing, amazing work for you know, the, the number of, of telehealth visits we have done over the past uh, you know, eight weeks. Uh, we've got, I think we went from three or two a week or maybe even three a month to close to 650 a day, which is really remarkable. But with that, we have to be cautious. And this is why Joyce is going to come in now and, and give you a presentation about this. We'll have time for questions at the end. Use your Q&A. Uh, format for the session. If we can't get to you, we'll get back to you at some point uh, during the uh, 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 either today or tomorrow. So we will respond to all the questions and we'll do it in a legal manner so we don't get into trouble. So Joyce, I'm going to pass it on to you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Juan, um, for those kind words. This is a little bizarre for me because I'm used to seeing an auditorium full of people and there's like five people here. But um, <laughs> So um, you may or may not recall, some of you may recall, that I did a Grand Rounds presentation on telemedicine five years ago. It was September of 2015. 
and we had selected that topic. Michelle Koss and I, you know, each year when I do the September Grand Rounds, are always looking for forward-thinking issues. You know, so what's new? What's hot? What's on the on the horizon? Um, and uh, so we selected that topic um, because it was forward-thinking and the next advance in medicine and. The, uh, that lecture was titled Telemedicine, the New Frontier in Healthcare Delivery. And you may remember that slide. Um, so the American telehealth, by then, by 2015, the American Telehealth Association had been established since 1993. So for 20 years, the issue of telehealth has been on the radar screen. Um, and at the time of that lecture in 2015, we went through all of the statutes and the regulations because you'll recall that it was 2015 that the Connecticut State Legislature had enacted uh, legislation enabling telehealth to be performed. Prior to that, it was considered inappropriate to try to manage a patient over the telephone or over video. And we talked about the barriers to telehealth and we talked about the risks and how to overcome them. And you all politely listened and, and asked some great questions. And you gave me good reviews on the forums, which I always appreciate. Um, and everyone went back to their offices and continued doing things the way they had um, been doing them for decades. Um, and between 2015 and uh, March of 2020, um, the volume, as Juan just mentioned, the volume of telehealth visits was in the single digits per week. Um, and it's my understanding that in the last five or six weeks, there have been 10,000 or plus telehealth visits um, with patients at Connecticut Children's. And so you say to yourself, it's sort of like when, the, when iPhones came in, how come somebody didn't think of this you know, before? Well, in fact, it had been thought of before, but providers, you know, I'm trying to think why hadn't we done this sooner? And I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, providers were and still are skeptical of this model of care. Um, where is the evidence that it provides care equivalent to in-person care, the model that we're accustomed to? Secondly, I think liability concerns always haunt the medical profession, and I think that's particularly so when it comes to a new model of care where there isn't evidence-based support for it. And thirdly, and I think just as importantly, we're all creatures of habit, and changing habits is one of the most challenging things for humans. And um, the social scientists who study this and, and history tells us that by and large we only change habits when we're forced to. Um, remember when we went from paper charts to electronic charts? Remember all the hollering and carrying on and the resistance to that? Um, well, this pandemic has forced more changes in habits by more people than, uh, than ever in the history of the world. I mean, it's mind boggling. I was trying to think of the last time I shook someone's hand or the last time I gave someone a hug. Um, but the use of telemedicine is a habit modification that patients and providers are experiencing of necessity. And this is an opportunity for us to figure it all out, how to do it right, um, because there will be no turning back. The practice of medicine as we knew it for decades will not be the same. My understanding, and I've heard it from Jim Schmerling uh, personally, that leadership is projecting that 30 to 40 percent of ambulatory care in the long term will be via telemedicine. Uh, I suspect that once peripheral monitoring devices become a household item, uh, it may even be higher than that. Okay? It may be that the majority of ambulatory care uh, is eventually done remotely. And there are so many types of care that lend themselves to, uh, to um, telehealth, medication management, prescription renewals, minor urgent care, pink eye, low-grade fever, uh, uh, chronic condition management, diabetes, asthma, um, uh, pediatric after-hours needs, behavioral health is particularly amenable to this, um, post-hospital discharge, uh, pre-surgery assessment, um, post-surgical follow-up. I mean, if you think about it, it's really limitless what um, we're not gonna be able to do surgeries on telehealth, but m much of, of the ambulatory care that we provide can be done remotely. Um, and why would that be? Well, this is, this is a, a, the slide I presented in 2015. At that time, I was promoting telemedicine as sort of a marketing thing, the and also a very valuable thing for patients, the consistency of patient care, the convenience for patients and providers, it was, a, it was a way, a strategy to increase patient population, a way to take care of the homebound, 
geographically remote patients, patients that have limited transportation options. Um, it permits operational efficiency and good oversight, increased revenue and, and profitability because of reduced administrative costs in part. Um, the volume of patients that can be seen is higher than in the in-person setting. The cost to patients is reduced, and I thought at the time it would give Connecticut Children's a competitive advantage because you would have been the, one of the only uh, facilities in the state of Connecticut that would be using telemedicine. Um, but live and learn. There's a few more benefits that we've come to appreciate. Um, there's a lot of literature and data out there about uh, clinician shortages, especially in the unique subspecialties, access to subspecialty care in, the, in rural and underserved populations. Um, it's been shown to improve efficiency, especially in chronic disease management. Patients love it. it, it is, there's been a, there, there will be and has been uh, a lot of positive feedback from patients with respect to this uh, strategy. And who would have thunk it'll help reduce the spread of infectious diseases. Um, you know the saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, it applies here. There is real opportunity to turn this current telehealth frenzy into a long-term strategy that will benefit patients and providers and healthcare institutions in very meaningful ways. Every patient home is an ambulatory care center. We may not need all that brick and mortar space any longer. Um, who'd have thought that we'd be back making house calls? Um, however, there are challenges to this technology. And this is a slide that I presented in 2015 where we identified some of the challenges. Um, the, and one of the concerns is the appropriate clinical scope for this technology, the liability exposure, the privacy concerns, documentation, how are we going to document, what about informed consent, licensing issues, um, the patients have to have the requisite technology, technical issues that arise when you're using telehealth, the costs, which was a major challenge, and then reimbursement. Well, Connecticut was one of the states in the forefront to, um, when they initially passed legislation, they made reimbursement of telemedicine, telehealth visits uh, on par with, uh, uh, with inpatient in visits. Now, there was a great article published in Pediatrics in 2018. Oh, by the way, a couple of other barriers that have come to light. The lack of evidence on the impact of outcomes. There's been some studies to try to determine why physicians aren't embracing this. Why isn't this, you know, uh, you know why isn't everyone doing it? It seems so uh, appropriate. Well, there's a lack of evidence on the impact on outcomes uh, for patients as opposed to, to uh, in-person visits or healthcare costs. Clinicians are concerned about their duty to provide safe and effective care. And, and I've had physicians tell me it's just not the same as a hands-on visit. And then the logistical workflow challenges. Well, the 2018, the, there was an article published in Pediatrics. It was a, a state-of-the-art paper and a review paper on the current pediatric uh, telehealth landscape, and I would urge all of you to take a look at it. Um, the, the barriers that they identified had to do with pediatricians seeing telehealth as a threat to the quality of care and their own practices. Other concerns include uncertainty over liability, credentialing, licensing, reimbursement, and a relative lack of rigorous research on the quality and value of pediatric telehealth when compared with in-person care. That's been a real issue. I mean, we, we, we talk about evidence-based medicine. Where's the evidence to support us doing this? Um, they noted that pediatric telehealth programs across the United States have, have historically grown individually rather than in a cohesive fashion. Um, there aren't telehealth conferences that all, all providers are attending. It makes it very difficult to, to address the concerns in an evidence-based manner. So that has been the challenge. Well, this group of researchers who published this paper um, <clears throat> are undertaking to address that problem. Uh, a national pediatric telehealth research network was developed called Supporting Pediatric Research on Outcomes and Utilization of Telehealth. It's called SPROUT. That's the acronym. It was established in 2015, and it consists of uh, health organizations from around the country, there was, in fact, from around the world, and what they're seeking to do and have been doing since 2015 is gathering data on existing pediatric telehealth services, um, and they're facilitating. There are some multi-center uh, trials underway right now, and it seems to me that we, um, 
should engage with this Sprout Collaborative, as it seems to be the epicenter of evidence-based data on telehealth and pediatrics. And there's going to be a ton of data deriving from this pandemic because telehealth is uh, in, in such widespread use. They also talked about the high-quality studies on the effectiveness and safety of pediatric telehealth are important. Numerous studies have demonstrated telehealth's feasibility and a high level of satisfaction from patients, but rigorous multi-center studies are needed. That is the resistance point from a lot of medical providers. We're only doing it now because we have to. Um, and the Sprout Collaborative is gaining a lot of support, um, and they are looking to partner. I mean, this is a pediatric-focused uh, consortium. They're looking to partner with pediatric institutions for the purpose of developing best practices, of developing the data. Um, and um, so I, I spoken with Jeff, I think this is something that, that Connecticut children should get, should, get, should get engaged with. There was also um, an article just published in the, in the British Medical Journal, which I recommend. And the reason I direct your attention to it is that it reports on the status of the randomized trials to date. And they note randomized trials, most of, most of which were underpowered, have shown that clinical consultations conducted through a video link tend to be associated with high satisfaction among patients and staff, no difference in disease progression, no substantial difference in service use, and lower transaction costs uh, compared with traditional clinical-based care. And um, however, almost all of its evidence pertains to highly selected samples of hospital outpatients with chronic stable conditions. And they were published, this was published in just in March of 2020, they were publishing it in connection with use, utilizing it for COVID uh, disease identification and management. Um, and this obviously is an acute and potentially serious illness. And so the article goes on, but the point of it is that the, it, it seems clear that, um, that we need more data. And I think this is an opportunity to get it. But for right now, we have the opportunity to work through the barriers compile the data, work through the challenges in this environment because it is somewhat pr protected. Regulatory and legal barriers have been lifted during this pandemic. And let me run through some of them um, that have made this easier than it would otherwise have been. As a matter of fact, if these barriers were, were in place, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. Uh, the Connecticut telehealth statute required that telehealth services be by interactive video. Okay? Well, Executive Order 7G allows telehealth providers who are enrolled in Medicare or, or insurance plans to do services via audio-only telephone to establish patients. I mean, not every patient has the technology at home to engage in this. And the concept is some limited care, imperfect care is better than no care. So for now, uh, you can use audio only. Um, uh, by the way, just as an aside, that does not apply to Medicare patients. Medicare patients still require um, in-person, in virtual, I mean, virtual video. Um, HIPAA applied to all telehealth activities by Connecticut Statute 19A206. 19A206, you can Google it if you like. That is the statute that was enacted by the legislature to permit telehealth activities, and it provides the rules for telehealth uh, activities. And one of them is that HIPAA applies. Well, that's a challenge because um, the, 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 we don't have protected uh, services out there in patients' homes. So uh, HHS uh, issued a directive that providers may use you know, apps, popular applications, FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, video chat, uh, Skype. These are not HIPAA protected. They're not in encrypted. And by the way, they, they did not, this is kind of interesting. And this was in, in, enacted by the governor in, a, uh, in a, um, uh, one of his executive orders, but he adopted the HSS guideline. Um, they didn't do away with the HIPAA regulation. They just are not enforcing it right now. Okay, that's kind of a... It's a distinction, I think, with a difference, because I think when we look to what is going to remain permanently and what is not, this HIPAA is going to be, a per when, when we get past this and go back to the old rules, this, uh, this HIPAA rule, I think, is going to uh, remain in effect. I am hoping that as we experience this and as the data comes out, people are going to see that all these ridiculous regulations aren't necessary to achieving the objective. And by the way, 
privacy is a, is a right that you have, but all rights can be waived. If a patient decides they are comfortable with having, uh, using FaceTime, uh, now there's got to be a process for accomplishing a waiver of that right, but all rights can be waived. And that's an that's a issue for another day. I'm not advocating that we have all patients waive their HIPAA protections, but in a situation where a patient doesn't have access to care on a telehealth platform that is fully encrypted, that is an option. Um, under the Connecticut statute, telemedicine visits had to be conducted from the provider's licensed facility. So the Connecticut children's doc had to come into the hospital or into the office to do the, don't ask me why, but uh, especially since all of the medical records are electronic. But the executive order 7G waives the regulation that requires that telehealth services be provided from a licensed facility. So you can do telehealth, you as the provider, from anywhere. Um, the, under the Connecticut telehealth statute, there were very strict guidelines for what could be prescribed through telehealth. And it basically did not permit the prescription of schedule one, two, or three controlled substances. That has been uh, modified by executive order, which now does allow for non-opioid non prescriptions for mental health, uh, including persons with psychiatric disabilities, substance abuse disorders, ADHD, uh, the prescriptions need to be submitted electronically, which they always needed to be. Medical marijuana, um, so which by statute would not have been permitted, now can be done through telehealth. Um, the Connecticut statute provided that the telehealth provider had to be licensed by the state of Connecticut to engage in telehealth services. Well, that is no longer in effect, at least temporarily. Uh, the governor has suspended the licensure requirements and allows all providers uh, to provide telehealth services. And the, the intent here was to allow access to telehealth services from out-of-state providers. It's not clear whether that will, the, the, the whole issue of where you have to be licensed is going to be up for debate. Right now, you have to be licensed by the state where the patient is. Um, and that's creating some confusion, and uh, we can speak to that, especially if people have specific questions. But right now, the, the, the geographic boundaries, the state boundaries are not in effect. Now, this is the, um, <laughs> this is the, the executive order that is creating quite a bit of commotion. This was Governor Lamont's Executive Order 7V which was intended to immunize healthcare professionals or healthcare facilities from suit for civil liability for any injury or death alleged to have been sustained because of the individual or healthcare facilities acts or omissions undertaken in good faith while providing healthcare service in support of the state's COVID response. Now, um, I still don't know where the governor gets his authority to do this. Um, because there is no constitutional authority to, uh, to immunize providers from civil liability. What needs to happen is the legislature needs to endorse the governor's uh, executive order in legislation and apply it retroactively. And I know there are some efforts underway to make that happen because uh, if the plaintiff's bar uh, challenge this um, immunity order, I think they would probably be successful because I don't, I can't find, as a matter of fact, <laughs> Governor Lamont was, uh, was doing a press conference and someone asked him where his authority is to immunize the healthcare profession and he said, well, the lawyers are, are working on that. So uh, I wouldn't put too much faith in this yet, although um, I can tell you this because I've spoken with most of the plaintiff's attorneys who do medical malpractice in Connecticut and all of them have told me, in fact, the Connecticut Trial Lawyers Association, I have a little mole in there who tells me what's going on. Um, they are not planning on taking COVID cases unless, although I, I think the nursing home dynamic may, may be a little different, but I'm told that they're not really planning to do that. Um, that's their give back to the medical profession for, for 40 years of torture. <laughs> um, now, importantly, uh, there's, there was no immunity, even if this were to, to, to hold up, 
for anything that constitutes a crime, fraud, malice, gross negligence, or willful misconduct. Okay, it has to be taken in good faith. And, and as best I can tell, everything that's being done by, in, in connection with this telehealth dynamic is in good faith. Not only is it in good faith, it's in the best interest of patients, it's in the best interest of providers, and it's in the best interest of the institution. So I'll defend any one of you if some idiot decides that they're going to take one of you on. Um, so, and the other, the other point, the other thing, point that I'll make, it's sort of an aside, but the, the standard of care, which is what you are duty bound to, you are required to comply with the standard of care. Well, it has been standard of care to utilize telehealth services since 2015 when the statute was enacted. The issue becomes the scope. What are the circumstances under which doing telehealth is not appropriate? And that's where the, the, the societies and the associations and that scout group are gonna be looking at the circumstances and there's gonna be some, some clarity on, a, on an evidence-based basis as to what is okay and what is not standard of care. But standard of care in the context of a pandemic is incorporated in the, standard, in the definition of standard of care in Connecticut. This is the definition of standard of care. It's the prevailing professional standard of care for a given healthcare provider is that level of care, skill, and treatment, which in light of all relevant surrounding circumstances is recognized as acceptable and appropriate by reasonably, reasonably prudent similar healthcare providers. So the shortcuts that are being taken, even those that are beyond what, what the governor's orders require, okay, can all be explained if there were to be a challenge to something you do or something you don't do in, in, in view of the in light of all relevant surrounding circumstances. So the, the important thing, because remember, the lawsuit's not gonna come for two years and then the deposition's a year later and then the trial is a year after that or two or three. We're not doing jury trials in Connecticut. They're not starting up again until the spring of 2021. So God knows when your case would ever come to. Um, it's, it's critical that if you're doing something that's off the beaten path because of the necessity, because of the surrounding circumstances, that your chart make clear what those circumstances are that justify you deviating from the norm. Okay, there is deviating from the norm going on, and 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 rightly so. The most important thing is that we keep the patients healthy and safe, and keep ourselves healthy and safe. And that means we're cutting corners. Okay, and uh, and I have a concern about the corner cutting because because of the habits that derive when you start that slippery slope, and when we get back to normal, what that's going to mean. But but the point of this slide is that make the surrounding circumstances um, that justify deviation from the norm clear in your charting, okay? I mean, these modifications from the norm are someone's judgment of the balance of risk and benefit in the context of the realities of the pandemic. But it is really important, and I know Jeff wants me to highlight this, when this is over, and I hope to God it's over someday, I need a hug. <laughs> Um, the risk-benefit equation is going to shift back. There will not be liability protection. HIPAA will apply again. The DPH will be all over us. Okay, we're going to go back to the norm, and this circles back to my creature of habit speech. Once we establish a habit, changing it is a big deal. So while we're in this protected bubble, let's develop the best practices and habits. Let's develop the workflows. Let's work through the kinks. Um, the special circumstances that are challenging, and there are many, and we're going to walk through a, a few of them. Um, you know, we've been forced into this telehealth world. And what would normally have taken five years to pull together, Connecticut Children's pulled off in like five weeks. It's pretty remarkable. And I have to give some kudos to Jeff Sargent because it was him and his team that made this happen, and it was pretty extraordinary. Um, but anything that's rushed into operation is going to have operational flaws. I mean, that's inevitable. I don't know what you guys know about the PPP program, uh, operational flaws, um, but um, telehealth is poised to be the next most studied medical care delivery model, okay? And, and although the data out there is sparse, it's all very favorable, but the issues are where are the limits and what should be the protocols for its use? 
and there are multiple entities and organizations, some that have established protocols for the COVID setting, and some which have been looking at protocols for years. Um, the American um, the American Telemedicine Association, remember, they've been around since 19, I think, 93. Um, they recently published operating procedures, March of 2018, operating procedures for pediatric telehealth, which were endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, and the, the, the purpose, I mean, what they did in designing these was to help develop local practice guidelines that reduce exposure to malpractice lawsuits. I mean, that's what's at the forefront on everyone's mind having policies and practices in place that are going to ensure that the care that the patients get and the outcomes in the telehealth dynamic are the same as in the in-person dynamic. Um, but, you know, be now that telehealth is becoming the norm and the jurors are all going to be exposed to telehealth, you know, when, it was, when we were going to be alone in it, which we were, uh, I was very concerned about the risk. But now it's going to become commonplace, and so I think there's going to be less focus on the fact that it's telehealth. The major, remember, the major uh, pediatrics, it's failure to diagnose the condition. Failure to make the diagnosis. And, you know, it's sort of intuitive that if the patient is sitting in front of you, hands-on, that you're going to be more likely to get it right than if the patient is on a video screen. That's sort of an intuitive sensibility. The data doesn't bear that out, the data that we have. Um, so we have to be very careful in what protects us, what's going to protect us and protect all of you, is having policies that associations and societies who are studying this are promulgating for the pediatric community. And not only is the uh, American Telemedicine Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics has endorsed it, but the American Medical Association, uh, actually in 2016, they conducted a study of physicians' motivations for use and requirements for telehealth. Um, and they developed a playbook, the American Medical Association playbook, which is specifically designed to help you and your team overcome the barriers to adoption so, so you can experience the benefits. And um, you'll be able to circle back to this, but th these are the websites that, that actually have the, the, they have a playbook for management, they have a playbook for tech. Uh, it's, it's very interesting and it's, it's useful. And these are resources that are helping guide, I'm sure Jeff is accessing them to guide the, the process that's in place. Um, and and what, what Jeff and his team have done is they've created a system within Epic that's designed to ensure compliance with the permanent rules okay, that we all are going to have to live by going forward. And it, I think it's really important that to the extent possible, we not allow ourselves to, to rely heavily on the protected environment and that we do everything we can to, uh, to practice the real rules because that's going to be what's, what's I mean, that's going to be the, the going forward. We're going to have to play by the, by the, um, but the, this is, this circling back to that article that the 2018, despite the limitations, pediatric health has advanced significantly, is no longer an experimental concept. This is in 2018. As pediatricians, we must ensure that children consistently receive high quality, high value telehealth, but the potential is almost limitless and implementation is becoming easier each year. Um, so. What are the goals in terms of executing on this? Well, patients, ultimately, they're going to be required to follow the procedures set by Connecticut Children's for Telehealth Visits. And that's going to be through the MyChart portal. And that is the best way to ensure compliance with the regulations, privacy, the required consent, the documentation, and the billing. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. But if you don't use it, and I understand some patients don't like it, and that's a, that's a challenge that has to be worked through. Um, so let's talk about the challenges to achieving the goal. And again, the goal is, is routing every one of these telehealth visits through the portal. 
that's going to give us control. It's going to give us the opportunity to ha have the data. Um, what about patients who aren't able to navigate the portal? I mean, I can't get my father to figure out Instacart, okay? So, I mean, people are challenged. Uh, it seems simple to us, and so some people have uh, sort of SWAT teams that run out to people's homes and, and demonstrate to them or do it over FaceTime. Show them, work through. Once everybody gets accustomed to it, once everybody figures it out, it's gonna take time, it's gonna take patience, but um, we can get, what about people who don't have iPads or, or uh, that's a problem. But that is also a problem that can be solved, primarily with money, but um, what about patients who have weak Wi-Fi? What about you're in the middle of a visit and, and connectivity issues arise? I mean, how many times have you been on a call and just gotten dropped? Or you're in the middle of a sentence and you, you get, you know, you, you, you uh, get cut out. What about patients with language barriers? What about patients with intellectual barriers? How do you verify that the adult at home with the patient is a parent or guardian? We have this in the ED all the time. That's, that's a, but it's even, it's a, it's a step removed when you're looking at somebody on a video screen. Patients in DCF custody living in foster care where DCF has the consent authority. I mean, these are all in, and we can talk about them, but these are all solvable. They're all solvable. We just have to figure out what, and over the course of time, we can get these problems resolved. Um, the guiding principles, because you can't script, you can't identify every circumstance in a policy, okay? If this happens, you do that. No, you have to have guiding principles and then you have to use your judgment. But the guiding principle is whenever meaningful communication cannot be achieved for whatever reason, technical, intellectual, language, if you cannot meaningfully communicate with the child and their parent or guardian, then you have to get that patient in for a visit because that's gonna be where lapses occur, where you're not really understanding. You know, Dr. Fox mentioned, you know, there's another interesting benefit to telehealth where people are in their homes. You get an in, some insight into the living environment, um, which I thought was a very, could be very beneficial. Um, whenever it becomes apparent to you that the clinical issue is beyond the scope, you gotta get the patient in. Okay, I, I am advocating, especially now, until we have all the evidence-based data that will help us carve out, you know, when you can and when you can't, that the threshold for acquiring an in-person visit should be low while we're in this practice mode, while we're in this protected mode, if you will. But here's the problem. What do you do when, when you insist on an in-person visit and the patient refu the parent refuses? And this is happening. Uh, well, I say you negotiate, okay? You negotiate. That's what you do with patients when they're in, you know, patients who they don't want this medication. It's okay, I'm gonna do it this time, but, but I cannot. It's not fair to your child, it's not safe for your child for me to be making these judgments on tele. I need to have the patient come in. What is the barrier to getting the patient in? And then you figure it out. But if a patient should be seen and, and, and you make judgments and make diagnoses when, when you do not feel comfortable that you have all the data you need and all the insight, you know, so much of medicine is, 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 you know, is art. It's that gestalt you get when you're talking to someone and you're listening to them and you see them and you see how they react, you see their color and you see, right? That's what we do. And that's not easy to do. So if you have any concern you just got to get the, the patient in. Um, I, um, well, there's so many, we could go on and on. I want to leave a lot of time for questions, but um, because I, I, I wanted to do this at more of a high level, the devil is in the details, but the details are emerging as we speak. That's why I'm focused with, with you on the guiding principles. All right, you have to meaningfully communicate and you have to get patients in that need to be seen. That's it. The rest is judgment based on uh, the guiding principles. And again, you know, let me just, um, it, the, the, I don't want, I, 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 I would caution you 
to not get too comfortable with the, you know, the loose rules, right? Um, because those rules are not going to be in place. And if you get accustomed to loose rules, you're going to be get comfortable with it. And then when those rules don't apply anymore, you're going to be challenged to get yourself disciplined to doing it the way it has to be done. And that's what's going to open you up to, to liability and vulnerability. So I would really like for everybody to, to as best you can, we're all doing the best we can. And, and, and anything bad happens to anyone, you know, I will take care of that as best I can. But I'm just trying to give you some guidance so that it'll spare you. You don't want to have to see me. Trust me. It's a terrible thing. I love all of you, but the last thing you want is to have to go through the process. And so I'm trying to put myself out of a job. So if you follow my, my guidance, then I'll be out of a job and I can retire and that would be wonderful. So, um, so I want to take questions for sure. Um, Thank you. Uh, as always, uh, an amazing presentation and, and we have uh, 251 people logged in uh, that are interested in, in the topic, and uh, as, as I said, you're a big draw. So from uh, Dr. Zelneritis, can people, if people can't, I guess you can't, if you can't hear me, you can't tell me, but hopefully you're hearing me. Uh, in our Zoom sessions, one of the questions, uh, this is from Dr. Zelneritis, in our Zoom sessions, one of the questions we ask of, of uh, it, up front is for the patient-family agreement to proceed with the telehealth visit and document agreement. Do we need anything else, like two elements of identification that can verify who's on the session? So, so we ask, we ask them, uh, obviously we see them, uh, and then they're on the right record. Uh, Ed is asking, do we, need, do we need additional identification to document who's, who's in the session? Well, that's a really good question. I don't think there's any rule on that. Um, but, you know, when a patient comes in, you have to show identification, right? When you come into an in-person visit, oh, <laughs> uh, you have to show identification. That's primarily, I think, for billing issues. If it's a patient that you know and you recognize, that's one thing. There's no reason why you couldn't, if you had a concern about the identity of a patient, request that they show you on Zoom uh, their license or some form of identification. But I think, I think that's sort of a, it's a formality, um, but, and, but I think the important thing is for you to document what the, pay, we have this a lot where I can't, I don't know if it's actually the parent or not. Uh, it's my view that you have to do what is reasonable to assure the identity of the people you're dealing with. And in this setting, what's reasonable is asking them and, and believing what they tell you, unless you have a reason not to. You know, you can't, people can lie. And if a patient lies to you and you engage with that patient and you've done taken reasonable steps to ensure that you are dealing with the right person who has consent authority to, to deal with that child. But you, you can, I mean, that's what we do in the ED, we ask them. Sometimes we have issues where, where you're not sure which parent has custody, but that's, not a, that's no different in, in the telehealth setting than it is in the in-person setting. It's just that in the telehealth setting, you're once removed and you, you, know, you, you can't necessarily get the same you know, gestalt that you can in person. So uh, another one, uh, this is from one of our pediatrici pediatricians. While I agree that much of the chronic care and behavioral health visits are well suited for this, the reason telemed cannot easily address our long-term acute visit needs is in the outpatient general pediatric setting it has to do with antibiotic stewardship. And so uh, I guess the, it's, a long, it's a long question, but the, um, uh, part, of, part of this is, is uh, I think, questioning um, you know, the effectiveness, the quality of the, of the visit. And that may be, uh, maybe it's part of a legal question, it's also part of a, uh, of a quality of care issue. So, so any, any thoughts that you may have on, on quality of care uh, in, in terms of a telehealth visit versus a, uh, a hands-on visit, uh, especially as it relates to prescribing certain medications? Well, I think medication management, it, it, I mean, telehealth is suited to medication management, um, but, but 
you know, it's, it's one of those situations where different providers are going to have different thresholds or sensibilities for managing medication, and we don't have evidence-based data on it. So we're all sort of going with our, our threshold or tolerance for risk or our own sort of the, the standard of care does permit medication management on telehealth. The question is, are there circumstances where medication management isn't appropriate on telehealth? And that's a very context-driven, judgment-oriented decision that you have to make in the context of the patient. That's why I say fall back on the guiding principles. Am I comfortable? Do I need to see the patient? Okay, you know, am I feeling right about this? And if you're not, you get the patient in. It's, it's, it's just that simple. And, and I can't imagine there's gonna be a lot of parents who aren't gonna be willing to bring their patients in if you say to them, I'm not comfortable, gotta see them. And they're gonna get accustomed to that. Remember, we're, 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 getting, we're doing this together, the patients and the providers. And we're going to develop sort of a rapport on this and, and a sense as to, you know, and they're going to follow your guidance, except for the dysfunctional parents. But, I mean, I don't know what to say about them. You just have to manage your way through them, which the way you do in in-person visits. Next question is, uh, it's telehealth by its nature a deviation from the norm? It's, it's a deviation from the norm in the sense that we haven't been doing it. It is not a deviation from the standard of care. And, and, um, and, it's, and it's becoming the norm, okay? So it, it, if you look at it historically, yes, we're now deviating from the norm. But since 2015, the standard of care has permitted telehealth. So there's, there's no, no one's doing anything wrong. The, the wrong issue is gonna be where are the limits? Did I, did I engage in a telehealth session that was not suited for that telehealth session? And remember, the, the outcome is always known when they make the decision as to whether you should have done it by telehealth or not. Uh, so it's, it's, and it's gonna be the norm. I am predicting 50% of ambulatory care uh, visits are gonna be telehealth. Patients love it. Th think about it. You gotta get the kid, you gotta bring the other kid in the car, you gotta get him in the car seat, you gotta put the ch wheelchair in the car, you gotta get here, you gotta park, you gotta get in the thing, you gotta go through, the people that make you wear the badge. I mean, you know, a 15-minute visit is a two-hour ordeal. I mean, think about that. So it's going to be the norm. Okay, thanks. Um, so uh, we are, uh, this is from, a, I think, a pediatrician. We're directly to the New York border. Are we able to see these patients via telehealth? What about a patient who's out of state? Well, those are the licensing rules. And the general rule is that it's where the patient is situated is the site of the visit, not where you are, where the patient is. Now, the rules of interstate treatment have, but, but this, the, the, the law of New York would be, would apply. Because if the patient's in New York, the question in Connecticut, if, if it, Connecticut is allowing out-of-state visits, telehealth visits, the question is, is New York? And I'm not a New York lawyer. I believe that, uh, frankly, I think Governor Lamont basically tailored all of his executive orders after Cuomo. Was, he sort of followed him. So I suspect that you can take care of patients in New York. There's also an exception. If you have an established patient who goes to Florida, you know, for a visit and gets sick in Florida, you can take care of them remotely. It's, it has to do with the establishment of the patient relationship. Second question. Right. Right? So, what about if a patient who's out of state, who's a you know a college student who's in Indiana, but it's based you've seen him or her here, then it, then you can you do can that. You can take care of that patient. You got it. Okay. Mm. Uh, this is from uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Himes, one of our uh, pedi pediatric gastroenterologists, at, uh, and I and, and I've spoken to Jeff many times. He's been sitting in the same chair at his house doing telemedicine visits, and so. This question goes, nobody goes to medical school to do televisits. Well, we may be, there may be equal outcomes. There will not be a human contact that drives many people into medicine. I think it's more of a comment than anything else. And He's absolutely right. Medicine, you know, it's hard for people. I, I mean, I look at the, the younger generation. Those of us, and he and I are in the same generation, uh, you know, we're not used to this. So for us, this is so bizarre. But this is going to be the norm. And so the kids coming out of medical school now, they're not going to know any different. 
They're not going to have had 45 years of that human contact that de developed. One thing that, Bob, that I am worried about to that point, you know, one of the most risk mitigating features of the physician-patient relationship is the physician-patient relationship. When you have that good relationship, I mean, I wouldn't sue, I, I couldn't sue my doctor if he chopped my head off because I adore him. This is a little distant. There, you don't have that same, you know, it, it's going to be much more formalized, you know, chit-chatting about the kids and, oh, you look great today. So it's going to be different. But the next question is the, the way it is. The inability to perform a careful physical examination should not be underestimated, whether it's mm -hmm. an enlarged lymph node that is missed or an enlarged spleen or a small skin lesion. Nobody should fool themselves to consider televisit and in-person visit equivalent. Absolutely not. And that's why there's going to be guidelines for what you can and what you can't. If, you have, if in your differential is anything serious, you've got to get them in. There's just no question about it. This is for low-risk situations that don't require a hands-on physical. But I'll tell you, what's, what, you know what the next version of this is going to be? There's going to be a kiosk in every school, every daycare center, every camp, summer camp. I mean, the, the, the opportunities for pediatrics is limitless. And they're already where the school nurse does the physical stuff and is reporting to the physician. Um, you know, there are other ways if you use a kiosk approach where patients don't have to come all the way to their, you know, there's a kiosk at some outlying place and there's a, you know, a PA there or an RN. So there, th this is going to emerge and it's going to evolve uh, exponentially. I wish I had bought stock in that and in Zoom. <laughs> Next question. Uh, uh, we still have some health insurances who are refusing to pay for televisits here in Connecticut. Could you comment on that? I thought we, uh, the governor's law, or the governor's recommendations that they should cover those visits. Well, it's not the governor's, the statute requires it. In Connecticut, the uh, Connecticut General Statute uh, We're hanging, hanging on. We're putting a new microphone. Uh, it's, Ooh, uh, I burnt that one out. Yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. The, the, the law requires it. If, they, if somebody has an issue with an insurance company, just give me a call and we'll okay. straighten that out. Well, you're looking at it. So Chris Grindle, uh, who's one of our, uh, one of our pediatric otolaryngologists and, uh, and, and telehealth guru, says there's a Connecticut state requirement for two forms of ID in a telehealth visit. Typically, name and date of birth are used. That, that's what he, he's saying in terms of, it goes back to the original question about the two forms of ID. But as people are getting logged in, I think we do that. Doug McGilpin asks, uh, can you use photos from parents' phone to your phone? Those on the computer is not as good as you can, and you can zoom in and out. Can you use, um, I guess it has to do with security of how things are transferred from, from a parent to, a, uh, to the electronic health record via uh, telemedicine. So any comments on documentation and uh, it, you know, things, pictures that are taken and brought in into a televisit. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if the tech, if we have the technology for Jeff. Send it through right. If, so if, Jeff, Jeff, send it through the right. That's a secure way of doing it, and I agree. Otherwise, it becomes unsecured. Yeah, I mean, you should not be taking photos on a cell phone of something that a parent is holding up to you. If you don't, if it doesn't come through the portal, it's not going to be captured in an appropriate way. That's why the portal, it's just so important that everybody become facile with the portal. We've got to get the patients facile with it. It's actually very easy. Yeah, we it's just got to make sure it's high quality, high definition. I think that's a technical right. issue more than anything else. Um, uh, from uh, uh, Rebecca Moles, uh, uh, who's one of our scan doctors, uh, Rebecca asked uh, more of a comment than a question. In medical school, we were taught that it, the history from patient is the major source of information. Mm -hmm that the examination and lab values only confirm what you already suspected based on a detailed history and review of systems. Telemedicine is forcing us all to revert back to what we all were taught. This rediscovery of a skill is one of the several, uh, one of the silver linings of COVID. Thank you for this session. So it was, uh, was more yeah, of a comment. That's, more that's of a interesting. Comment from Rebecca. Um, another question, are there any resources available that provide suggestions for doing telehealth exams specifically? And, and uh, you know, that's one thing that we can uh, probably uh, move uh, to Dr. Grindle and maybe we can respond 
in terms of uh, resources. This wouldn't be a question for, for Joyce in terms of how to do physical exams. I think the, you know it from the legal perspective, but perhaps there's a different way. There are some guidelines. There are some resources out there that speak to it. But, you know, um, I, think, I think you're going to see a lot. There's going to be a ton of literature. We should revisit this down the road because there's going to be so much that's going to come out because of the experience that people are having that's going to be helpful. American uh, Academy of Pediatrics is going to be doing a lot. And the American Telemedicine Society, the AMA, all of these are going to be resources for that kind of information. All right. Um, so uh, oh, Chris Grindle also clarifies, New York law allows for cross-state reciprocity. So the oh. Connecticut, your Connecticut license is okay. Massachusetts law, Massachusetts law does not. So you need a mass license and they're granting emergent license, he said. So that's just a clarification. And Massachusetts is a little different than New York. Is what yeah, that makes no sense to me. Uh, well, Massachusetts does make sense a lot. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well and, and even going forward, I mean, you know, we, we're national standard of care. We have national licensing. We have national board certification. Um, if you're, if, I mean, Connecticut is just, Massachusetts is just as rigorous as Connecticut in, in, in giving doctors licenses. I think that you're going to see, as a result of, of, partially as a result of this, some of those regulations being permanently ceased. Okay, great. And then the last, uh, we're going to have the last couple of questions. Um, let me just get this. Uh, how does our responsibility as a mandated reporter change when reviewing patients hmm. in their home environment? Already have seen homes that are in this, in this repair cluttered and could be considered unsafe. That's a very good question. Uh, that's one of the, I say downsides, maybe not for the, for the child. I, I, um, I would urge, if you have a concern about the home environment, just because of clutter, boy, don't come to my house, whoever you are. <laughs> um, you know, it's almost, uh, I mean, that's just another judgment call. You might want to get another set of eyes on it to just to get sort of another assessment of whether they are concerned. You know, reporting someone to DCF is a big deal because I've, and they, they don't like that, parents. But on the other hand, your responsibility is not to the parent. Your responsibility is to the child, to their safety. So if you have a concern, you, you have to report it. You're required to. If, if the concern rises to the level that you think the child is, is in, in an unsafe environment, you really don't have a choice. You're required to report it. Uh, last question is uh, recommendations for exams regarding private areas and child pornography. Well, that's one I hadn't thought of. Um, I think if I'm not sure what the well, child I guess the question would be: as a parent calls, I have my five-year-old has a has a vaginitis, uh -huh. and, and I, you know, and, and the the healthcare provider says, well, I, I need to see it and, and right. document it. Are there any concerns in terms of? of child pornography when that occurs in a, on a video environment, video visit? I mean, I wouldn't think so. Okay. Because I think... It's just part of the exam. I mean, yeah, I think yeah, if it's so part of the exam, if you would do that in person, then I think anything you would do in person is, is appropriate to do if you can do it. I don't know, can you, can you diagnose vaginitis on a video? Probably not. <laughs> if you can, have at it. If that's what you would do in the office, then do it on the video. Okay. So, thank you very thank much. You. I get more pleasure out of this, I think, than they do. <laughs> all right. So, really appreciate it. We're all properly wearing our masks and uh, and taking her COVID water. My COVID yeah. water. So, <laughs> so thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, as you can see, this was an amazing session. We'll bring her back. Uh, maybe we'll do a summer version of this with Joyce if she's willing to join us for an update on some of the questions that she asked. And so for all of you, uh, stay safe. We'll see you again uh, Friday for Ask the Experts. And next Tuesday, I just want to comment is we have Dr. Peter Hotez, who is one of the national authorities in infectious disease and vaccine development. You've all seen him on CNN, uh, Fox News, every single media source. And he's going to be giving grand rounds on his vaccine, the one out of Baylor. It's going to be fantastic. And it's going to be at 9 o'clock, that's the difference. So it's uh, so just please write that down. It's not at 8 o'clock. We'll be at 9 o'clock. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of emails of why nothing's happening at 8. Uh, we'll send many of the reminders. Peter's in Houston, so he's going to be off of it for an hour, and that's why he has to be uh, at 9 o'clock Eastern time. So join us then. And in every other session, please stay safe. 
Uh, be optimistic. We're getting through this. And again, thank you for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye.